Hi, this is Nick Fletcher broadcasting from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta and Emory University, and this is Interview with the PD Pod. Today is a pretty special month. I have a really spectacular interviewee today. Dror Paley probably needs very little introduction, but if you're unfamiliar with him, Dror is a national and internationally recognized leader in limb deformity and limb deficiency. He is uh, absolutely an innovator in our field. He's created over 100 operations. He's reclassified a number of diseases uh, in, I think, a very useful and functional way. Uh, he's responsible for, for things like the multiplier, the super hip, the super ankle, amongst other operations. He's also authored and edited uh, the really the Bible of limb deformity, uh, something that I remember when I first got read a little bit like the instruction manual for VCR, uh, but is incredibly co uh, complete and thorough in its assessment of limb deformity evaluation, and I think something that he tr really should be commended for. Dror is a Canadian by birth, uh, but his story as to how he became a uh, four-time fellowship-trained uh, orthopedist who started really the limb deformity and limb deficiency uh, uh, evaluation for much of the U.S., how he has taken that to St. Mary's, where he is now in West Palm Beach, and created more of a destination medical care uh, uh, scenario is, is really uh, spectacular. I think that probably many people within our organization have preconceived notions of Drawer, and I'll have to admit that on some level I did as well, although I didn't know him much beforehand. And I will tell you, I had as enjoyable an hour and a half interview as I could have possibly asked for. He's incredibly engaging. He's thoughtful. I think he's very self-aware of, uh, of his role in our society, and I could not thank him more for, for being such a great interview. So I hope that you all enjoy this as much as I did, because I really did, and I think he's, uh, he was great to, to have on. I, of course, hope that you all have great summers, certainly that are better than last year, and I thank all of you for your support of this concept, and of course, Carter Clement and the whole podcast team for his assistance with this. So please, please enjoy this wide-ranging, really unique conversation with Dora Paley uh, of St. Mary's and the Paley Clinic. Dror, thank you very much. I'm going to welcome you in today. Uh, for those on the call, Dror just got done with a long bike ride and he's hot, <laughs> um, but it's uh, uh, he's, he's going to enjoy a little bit of time sitting down with us. And I'm, I'm really appreciative of you taking the time to do this. My pleasure. So, uh, you know, it's interesting. I've, uh, I've now done over a dozen of these interviews. And one of the things that has uh, been fascinating about sort of preparing for you is that most people don't have a ton of uh information online about them. You know, if you look me up, most of my stuff is carried on the Children's Healthcare of Atlanta webpage, but you've got such sort of a, a storied background and, and such an interesting career. There's actually quite a bit of information out there. And so it was, it was interesting getting a, a chance to, to sort of learn about you ahead of time. Um, I know you are from Canada originally, uh, but I don't have a ton of friends named Drawer. Um, and so I was sort of curious if you could talk about your family's background and, and where you grew up and sort of what you were like as a kid. Sure. Well, I was born in Israel, and that's where I get the name Dror. Dror means freedom or liberty. I was born on Passover. My mother named me because, you know, Passover is the holiday of liberty. And uh, so it's a Hebrew name. And then I, we immigrated uh, actually initially to the U.S. Um, in 1960 when I was four. And, uh, uh, and then uh, we actually, my dad was at MIT. Uh, so he came over for that. And then, and then we were actually forced out of the U.S. because of um, vestiges of McCarthyism. 
my my huh. my uh, family probably came from a very uh, liberal socialist background back in my father actually during the war was displaced. He was a Holocaust survivor. He was in Poland and moved to the Soviet Union. And then he went to Palestine and immigrated to, you know, to Palestine, which became Israel shortly thereafter. And my mother was actually born there. She loved to joke that she was a Palestinian. Um, and, uh, you know, so when they, when they applied for a green card in the U.S., they, uh, they came up with this background that they felt was too socialist for the United States in 1963. And uh, we were summarily shown to the border in 1963. And my dad had like a month or two to arrange to leave the country. And we moved to, uh, we moved to Canada. And he, co- he completed his PhD. He was doing PhD studies at MIT. He completed his PhD at McGill instead. And this was a serendipitous thing because, you know what, first of all, I think <laughs> mentality-wise, this was more suitable to how we looked at life. And secondly, um, you know, I, I think without, you know, Canada has a, a very um, subsidized uh, uh, university education system. So I got to go to, you know, one of the best uh, universities, University of Toronto, and what was then rated and still is up there, uh, top medical schools in North America, is, is rated as in the top four, was University of Toronto Med School. I got to go to that spending $1,076 on tuition a year. Now, you can't beat that rate, you know, even back then. At that time, Georgetown was $20,000 a year. So gives you a perspective and, and that really, I, I didn't understand, you know, that at the time till I moved to the States in 1987. But it was really a fantastic thing. And I, I really value, I grew up with socialized medicine. I value the, the I, I really benefited from the values I got growing up in Canada, you know, with no prejudice, no black, white, no, none of this stuff that historically the United States inherited. And, um, you know, a much more diverse culture. Um, and it really prepared me for who I am, a uh, much more cosmopolitan individual. I, I did an internship in uh, Johns Hopkins in 1979-80. Uh, uh, and then I went back and did the uh, residency program in Toronto, which back then and still probably to this day, but especially back then was probably it was back and forth between Salter and Henry Mencken, who was the better program, Harvard or Toronto. <laughs> and, and Salter used to joke around that, you know, uh, that Harvard thought that they were at the hub of orthopedics. And he said, yeah, because nothing moves very quickly at the hub. Everything moves quickly at the end of the spokes. <laughs> and Toronto is at the end of the spokes where things moved quickly. And uh, I always, always got a, a kick out of it. But Toronto is an amazing place amazing place to train and both i mean in orthopedics in general i mean the people like alan gross marv tile joe schatzker bob salter wally babetchko you know john costwick um you know um, um just the list went on and on and on norris carroll you know colin mosley uh, i mean these were my professors these were 
And yeah. they really shaped the way I learned to think. And I really credit that program for shaping thinking out of the box and, and really preparing me for what I was good at, which was really conceptual thinking. It gave me a tremendous foundation, a rock-solid foundation. And because of that rock-solid foundation, which serves me well to this day, you know, I've been able to develop a lot of new ideas because I'm, I was so well-grounded from my residency. So I'm, I'm forever indebted to my Toronto training. Um, and I was lucky to be there before the exodus, before what was then called the brain drain of all these guys who, who were such big names in their own rights, and they all became chairman of you know, orthopedic programs all over the United States. But I was there before that happened, even Ed Simmons, you know, before he moved to Buffalo and Bob Gillespie before he moved to Buffalo and all these guys. So, um, yeah, that was that was really a a pivotal thing. Um, And, you know, I did fellowships. I I did my first fellowship. I, you know, I really did not like things like total joints sports medicine, um, didn't like spine. Um, and my favorite rotation in all of residency was the six months of vascular surgery I did as a senior resident. So I was a a PGY three when I got to do six months of vascular at my request. I requested. Wow. Probably the first and last. Right. And it is why I am so comfortable around neurovascular bundles to this day. And I do a huge amount of work around what I call my friends. My friends are the nerves, arteries, and veins. And I visit my friends. I don't overstay my welcome. And, you know, I enjoy their company. And I'm always decompressing nerves and vessels and to avoid getting into trouble. But I'm very facile with them. And it's because of that six-month rotation. And... You know, I thought to myself, I'm in the wrong specialty because I really don't like this hard bone stuff, (laughs) you know, know? and and this like total joints. This is barbaric surgery. Like this is honestly cookie cutter surgery. It wasn't barbaric. It just wasn't interesting to me. Don't get me wrong. It's a revolutionary, amazing operation. Um, I didn't, you know, I worked with Bob Jackson, who was, you know, the pioneer of sports medicine and arthroscopy. And so I got amazing exposure in the days before, you know, before what I call digital arthroscopy. You still look through the tube, you know, and, yep. and all that stuff. Um, and, you know, and David McIntosh, who invented the pivot shift sign. And, and, you know, these were my mentors. I got incredible training, but I wasn't interested in, in that stuff. The first rotation that piqued my interest was hand surgery. And I said, oh, my God, I love soft tissues. And I love the fine dissection. And I love this, you know, this anatomy. And I found, I found spine surgery and um, total joint surgery gross. Like, I mean, it was just too chunky, too big. Yep, it wasn't, too big, it yeah. wasn't, people weren't gentle with soft tissues. I didn't like how they handled them. You know, for a guy who chose to do vascular surgery intentionally, you know, this didn't fit in. But 
as soon as I found hand surgery, I said, this is it. And so I, I signed up as a um, beginning of my PGY4 year, signed up for a hand fellowship. And then my next rotation was Pete's. And I said, oh, this is so much better than hand surgery. And it's a lot of soft <laughs> tissues and it's fine and it's delicate. And I love these tissues and these kids. This is amazing. I'd never done kids before. And we only did kids once for six months at, at, you know, at Hospital for Sick Kids, one of the greatest institutions for children. And, and I said, this is it. But I am always a man of my word. I'd given my word that I accepted the hand fellowship. I was already, I, I, I was one of several that had applied and I got it. So I went ahead and did my hand fellowship when I finished my training. But wow. meanwhile, I already arranged for a Pete's fellowship. So I did a year of I was at, I did a year of hand surgery in Toronto with Bob McMurtry at Sunnybrook Hospital, um, which is also the regional trauma center, where Marv Tile, Joe Schatzker uh, were. Yeah. And so I, what you basically everyone who was there became a trauma fellow, and did a huge amount of trauma. Okay. Yeah. And we were also trauma team leaders, so we did the we ran the trauma team. So I knew critical care. I knew all this stuff. And, you know, I, and, and it was interesting. And I actually did like trauma and I did my hands. So I finished kind of a trauma hand combined to double fellowship. And, um, and then I, in the meanwhile, discovered the Lazaroff. And I actually discovered that when I was a PGY three, um, and I spent me, you know, it was very hard to get information on that. So I, I kind of researched that for a couple of years and then it decided to go over. Um, I asked the guy I was doing my hand fellowship with to let me off for a month. And he did. And I went over to uh, Lecco, Italy to check it out for a week in 1985. OK, I, I finished my written Canadian exams and the same night I got on a plane and flew to Italy. No kidding. And, wow. And um, then I got there. So remember, I've now had two epiphanies, hands and children. And I got there and I said, oh, no, forget about these two. <laughs> I'm I gonna, found the real one now. I'm going to be a limb reconstruction surgeon. <laughs> now, Jeff, pardon my ignorance. Was, was, were there any similar institutes in the North America or was Devastini and Illinois? No, no. There, it, was, it was before anybody had paid any attention to this. Yeah. And in fact, I'll tell you a little anecdote. I mean, so I, I first heard about this stuff. 1983, um, and when I was uh, PGY3, and um, a guy named Renato Bambelli, very famous uh, hip surgeon, came over, and he was there for some conference. And he came to Grand Rounds, and and at Grand Rounds, he um, we were showing him cases. How do you treat this in Italy? And we showed him a bone defect of a tibia, and. And he looked at that and he then explained with his heavy Italian accent how 
you cut the bone and then you slide it down gradually. It's a Russian technique and blah, blah, blah. And there wasn't one question. There was silence. And I thought, okay, I'm the only ignorant guy who doesn't, has never heard of this famous guy, Elizarov. So I go to him in the coffee break and I said, I'm sorry, I'm just a junior resident. And could you please um, explain that to me again? So he drew it on a napkin for me, explained the whole thing. And this was the beginning of a great friendship between Bombelli and myself. And um, when he finished explaining to me, I realized no one in the audience knew what he was talking about, but they were too polite, okay, to say anything, and they didn't want to show their ignorance. So I, after this, went and researched this. And in Canada, there was only, like, the equivalent of Library of Congress was in Ottawa. I was in Toronto, and... And, and I requested all these papers. They had English abstracts. And I read all this stuff. And then, you know, and I didn't speak Russian at the time. I do now. But, and, and uh, you know, I, I started researching this. And then Bombelli, at my request, sent me some literature from Italy. And it just went from there. And it was very painful to research this in the beginning. You know, it was very slow, and then it crescendoed. I got more and more information. And finally, I said, look, I'm not going to be able to get enough information unless I go over there. So I did go over there in 1985 for a week. And, and then my eyes just exploded. And I knew this is what I wanted to do. Finally, I knew it. And what I didn't realize is that it's, it's an area that really encompasses all other subspecialties except maybe spine. Um, So if you had a fellowship in foot and ankle, if you had a fellowship in hand, if you had a fellowship in total joints, if you had a fellowship in in peds, it was all complementary. So this wasn't wasted time. This was all building blocks. So I came back from that and I said, okay, I called the Peds. I'd already had a Peds fellowship set up. I said, listen, guys, I'm already fully fellowship trained. And I don't want to do a full year. I want to do six months. And they allowed me to do six months. And I said, and I'm going to go to Europe for six months. And initially, I was going to do Peds first and then, and then uh, the other one next. But the next thing we discovered is my wife was pregnant, and that wouldn't have worked out. So we flipped it, and we went to Europe with her fully pregnant, and it was, a, it was maybe the most wonderful six months with our two-and-a-half-year-old child. My wife had a very easy pregnancy, and she really, we had so much time together. It was absolutely like a six-month honeymoon, plus I was learning virgin territory. I mean, I was learning from so many people. I spent time with, with Monticelli and Spinelli in Rome. I spent time with De Bastiani and his whole group in Verona. I spent time with Catania, Catania, and that whole group in Lecco. I spent time with Wagner. I spent time with the Lazarov. I spent time with a whole bunch of other people. And I created this six-month self-funded fellowship. And it was wonderful. My wife didn't have to fly back till the end of November. 
And because of the, pre- you know, she was eight months pregnant at the time. And I stayed till December, actually arrived back December 21st. She gave birth on the 22nd. And wow. so it worked out perfect. <laughs> yeah, kind of close, but yeah, you were there. So that's all that counts. It was a fairy tale six months. And I learned two new languages that I didn't speak before. I was going to say, so you, you didn't speak anything going into that. I spoke French. I spoke English. And my mother tongue is Hebrew. So I was a, I already was multilingual. Um, and, but I, I learned, I intentionally went there. I took all the books with me. And it's not like today where you can do it off of apps and so on. I took my little dictionary, gem dictionary, and I took a bunch of other grammar books intentionally planning to learn Russian and Italian. And you know what? I couldn't do it today. I don't have a 30-year-old brain anymore. Um, But my brain was like a sponge. And and you know what? I've since realized that languages are something that my family is good at. My dad spoke nine of them. One of my sons speaks five. I speak six. You know, so I didn't have a hard time learning it. You know, I was... I was fairly conversant in Italian in three weeks. It took me about six weeks to speak Russian, so a little longer. Um, and, you know, this, are, you know, I, I tell this to people and people are incredulous, you know, but it's true. And, and I was learning so much about orthopedics. I was learning about science fiction orthopedics, you know. Right. By the way, when I told the people, so I went from Sunnybrook Hospital where I was doing the hand and trauma fellowship. So when I told at that time, one of my mentors, who's a dear friend and mentor, Marv Tile and Joe Schatzker, yep. that I'm going to the Soviet Union. Remember, this is, this is, yeah, our, this is the mid 80s. This is, yeah, yeah. this is, this is, uh, you know, Glasnost was just about to be mentioned, okay? And I told them I'm going to go there to learn this technique. And I remember Marv's comment says, Dror, what's a bright guy like you going to do going to the Soviet Union to learn some Russian technique that's probably voodoo? Okay. Why don't you go do something useful like learn total joints? <laughs> <laughs> I reminded Marv's, I think in his 90s now, and, and is one of my favorite people. I've learned so much from him. Um, and so I hope he won't be upset at me telling this story. But, you know, it, it is, it, it, look, that he represented how we looked at life. Like you're, you're too young to, to remember the polarized world of, you know, of, of red and every other color. And um, we looked at life as them and us. I mean, that's the world that we, yeah. I grew up in. And, um, you know, it was, so there was nothing valuable, nothing useful that could come from the Soviet Union. So it was a real uphill battle, which is probably one of the reasons nobody had actually learned any of this. We were so close-minded I mean, you know, an, another technique that, that came from there, same time, this is a contemporary of Lazarus. So 
One of the biggest techniques in ophthalmology is LASIK. Okay. Radial keratotomy was the precursor of, of LASIK. It came from a Soviet ophthalmologist. Oh, wow. Okay. That all started there. Another voodoo technique, right? Um, yeah. Anyway, look, the rest is history, everyone, you know, but it was an uphill battle. Let me tell you when. I- How did you get to, to Russia? I mean, I can imagine at the time it must have been a little bit hard for, you know, North American. Obviously, you were Canadian, That's but so maybe that helped. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So being a Canadian was huge, um, you know, and, and I didn't like they didn't have relations with Israel at the time. So that wasn't a positive, but they never asked me about that, even though it says born in Israel on my um, I traveled on my Canadian. I didn't have an American passport then. I was I was coming from Canada, and uh, so no, it was very exciting time, very interesting time, and I got to. I was one of the few surgeons who actually got to know Lazarov personally because I could speak to him, and and believe me, it was a for Lazarov. I was some anomaly. Like the guy was born 1921, so he was probably he was 65 years old when I met him. Okay, wow. and you know, in his system, a I was 30. A 30 year old surgeon is a nobody and can achieve nothing. And this is the first guy from North America that they sent him. Right, right. Yeah, Yeah, this is what you send us? Exactly. So it wasn't until I brought him Viktor Frankl from joint disease and Stuart Green that he paid more attention, but I made that happen. Okay. And, you know, the first Lazarov course we ran was in 87 at a hospital for, uh, for a joint disease. And uh, November 87, and Luzarov came over. And, you know, Victor and I organized that course. Victor made it very clear how, how it works. He says, Dror, let me explain to you how it works. He says, to run a course like this, it takes two guys, a young guy and an old fart. The young guy to do all the work, the old fart to take all the credit. I said, I got it. So that's how it works. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Stuart said something else. So Stuart was involved. And, and Stuart says, Dora, let me explain to you how it works. Oh, everybody was giving me a lot of free advice. <laughs> I was 30, yeah. years, 30 years old, you know. And, and, I, and he says, and he, he points over at Victor. We were at this conference. He says, you see him? He says, he's a has-been. Victor is about 65 at the time. Um, he see, he see, points at me. He says, you see you? You're a will-be. He says, you see me? I'm an am. <laughs> so this was my introduction to how the world worked. Um, but it was a very exciting time. And working with Richard's Medical, which later became Smith and Nephew, and bringing all this stuff over. Um, but, you know, I, look, there, there were two, I guess, two kind of guys who got involved in this. And yes, I, I got involved. I was the earliest North American to get involved, but Europeans were already into this. It had come to Italy in 81, 
Okay, so this is five years later. Uh, Italians were well developed into this. Um, it had um, come to France, Spain, Germany. These places already had the Elizarov method. Okay, so we were we kind of had a relatively late late start, and actually Canada can claim to have started before the U.S. because I was still. I had to do my PEDS fellowship and the head of PEDS, Wally Babechko, who I was doing my fellowship with, allowed me to bring the Lazarov device into hospital for sick kids. And then because I had so many fellowships and I already finished all my exams, they made me an attending even though I was a fellow. So I, I got to start my own practice and be a fellow. And my practice grew so fast. I did my first 52 Ilizarov cases in Toronto before I moved to the States. And I already, I already had a job at University of Maryland, but we were waiting for my green card, my you know, labor certification, all that, because I was Canadian. And so November 15th, 1987, I started in, in, uh, at the University of Maryland. And... Um, I remember asking them permission. John Kinzora was the chief. I said, John, this is my dream. I really want to do this stuff. And John says, that's fine. If you can find any of that stuff, you can do it. But I brought you here because we don't have a pediatric orthopedic surgeon. And I need you to develop pediatric orthopedics. I said, well, I also want to do hands. I have a hand fellowship. Well, we have a hand surgeon, but if you find any hands, you could do some of them. And you know, so I started there. That was November 15th. By January 1988, I had a one-year waiting list. One year to get in my surgery schedule. My, wow. my practice and patients were coming from all over the United States and around the world in, in a course of two months. It was insane. And, and, you know, I said, John, you told me I could do this, John Kinzora, if I got enough cases. I said, what if I get so busy? And so, you know, eventually I brought John Hertzenberg on and, you know, and, and uh, Kevin Tetzwer. So we grew the unit there. And, of course, we did handle all the Pete's ortho as well as, and I was, at a very early age, chief of pediatric orthopedics. What a joke, right? 31 years old, I'm chief of pediatric orthopedics <laughs> in a non-existent program. Um, but we grew it so big. Our practice was enormous. And it was a medical tourism practice from day one. And Why do you think that is? I mean, that's so, that's, it's, it's like this fairy tale. It, right? it is. It is, a, you, you know, it, it's... Uh, um, it's well, I know why it is. I did this conference in New York with a Lazaroff there in November 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 1987. I hadn't even started at University of Maryland. That was happening two weeks later, right? And when I arrived at University of Maryland on November 15th, the academic secretary comes to me and says, Dr. Paley, what do you want us to do with all this mail that's coming in? I said, what are you talking about? She says, well, we are getting x-rays 
being mailed to us, about 10 a day from everywhere, from Europe, from, from the United States, from Latin America. So this international conference that I ran created my career. There were doctors there from everywhere. And I was a chairman of the program. Not only that, but I was the only, only person there from North America who presented their own cases. Remember, I'd done 52 cases. And right. ironically, so one of the things I did is, I mean, everyone knows me for deformity correction. I started explaining deformity correction. And I gave a lecture called Principles of Deformity Correction, believe it or not, in November 1987. I already was working these things out. I had no idea that was going to be one of my legacies, you know, and how important it was. And in fact, it, it infuriated Elizarov. Um, he didn't speak any English. So he would sit and listen to lectures and count how many times you said his name. <laughs> That's hilarious. You know, it was, I mean, he couldn't understand a word. And there was no simultaneous translation. You know, had somebody, he had a translator sitting next to him, but you really can't, you know, so he, he'd sit there and he, he got really upset at me because I gave, so this conference only about a loser off, nothing else. And I gave this lecture on the principles of hinges and where hinges go and what effect it has on the osteotomy, you know, angulation, angulation plus translation, this and that. I started explaining axis lines. Okay. I started, I already worked all this out, believe it or not, in the, I, it all came from trying to figure out where the hinges go. And I needed a more objective way that my brain could wrap it. You know, Lazarov put the hinge in the same place every time. Every time. And it didn't, you know, it was, you know, for a metaphyseal deformity, it went at the top of the you know, bone or at the bottom of the bone, depending if it was proximal or distant. But that was, that was about it. And it didn't make sense to me. And I started looking for the Cora and center of rotation angulation. And, you know, it, in retrospect, I had no idea how important what I was doing was going to become. No idea. It was just obvious to me, like totally obvious. And I didn't know that nobody knew anything about this. So I gave a simple lecture on this. And I showed cases where I'd implemented this. And people's eyes went. In other words, yeah. so I got famous for what people called the Lazarov would show the magic. And I'd explain the magic trick. Okay. Right. And in fact, people started inviting the two of us together. Because they said, yeah, Lazarov stuff's amazing. But you cannot learn anything. You can't figure it out. So what they would do is invite Elizarov, and they would invite me, and they'd take him off shopping as soon as his lecture was over, and then they'd have me speak and explain the magic, explain the principles, explain how it's done. And, and that's actually, you know, how that was especially internationally. Now, the guy in the United States who helped launch my career was Miron Tajan or Mike Tajan. 
Yep. You know, and Mike, of course, needs no introduction. Um, you know, he was one of the founders of the pediatric study group. Um, he created the Tajin course. Now it's, you know, the, the descendant of that is IPOS. Um, he created IPOT, uh, orthopedic think tank, and, and so on. And Mike, I guess, saw something in me early on. And he latched on to me. And, you know, I took the Tajin course as a resident in 1985. I was faculty in 1988. Okay. I, I think that has to yeah. be some kind of record. Um, yeah. And not only was I faculty, but Mike said to me, I want you to design a limb, two-day limb lengthening course as a pre-course to the Tashin course in San Francisco. And so I put together this, this pre-course on limb lengthening. And it was, it was someone else basically giving me an open checkbook to invite everyone that I trained with. And so I, and this allowed me to consolidate my relationship and my role with all of these big names, you know, um, the only person he had coming regularly was Wagner. Um, but you know, now I invited De Bastiani, I invited Aldegheri, I invited all the group from Lecco, I invited Spinelli, I invited, you know, a lot of names, Julio de Pablos, and, and, and a lot of people came to this meeting. And basically, it was an open checkbook, as many as you want to invite. And again, I ran this. You know, and this was a, again, I'm now 32. <laughs> yeah. This is a big deal. It was such a big deal that it pissed a lot of people off. As you know, we have a very political society. Um, and there were individuals that felt threatened by this 32-year-old guy who they felt had not earned his accolades. And um, they, without mentioning names, two of them in particular, very senior statesmen, went to Mike Tajan and said, Mike, if he comes back next year, we won't come back. Wow. That's tough as a young faculty, too. Yeah. And... You know, my, my good friend and mentor from Toronto was Norris Carroll. And I went to Norris and I said, and he also worked with Mike up in Chicago, Children's Memorial. I said to Norris, I said, what did I do wrong? I don't understand. Why do these people hate me? What have I done to them? I said, only the one thing I can be accused of, and that is being overly enthusiastic and wanting to share everything I know with everyone because I don't hide anything. I said, is that a crime? <laughs> and Nora said to me something interesting. Um, says, Drawer, in 12 to 24 months, it wasn't even 20, no, it was 12 months, that you've been involved it wasn't even 12 months. This is, this is like July 1988. 
I only went into practice in November. I'd already pissed everyone off by July. That's, that has got to be <laughs> That's a record. another record. Yeah. And he says, you have achieved a profile greater than these people achieved in 20 years. He says, there's not a pediatric orthopedic surgeon out there who doesn't know who you are. And you're 32 years old. He says, yeah, these people are not going to let you continue on that kind of trajectory. They're going to stop you. You're going to have to earn your place. And I said, but I'm not, I don't, I don't understand. I'm not asking, you know, Miran invited me. He says, yes. And Miran disinvited me. So he had already invited me for 1989. And he calls me up and he gives me some lame excuse, which I saw through. And I said, Miron, what's going on? And he told me, he, gave, he even gave me the names of the two individuals. Okay. And, and, you know, since then, I became very friendly with those two individuals, by the way. Just, you know. Yep. But, you know, they were not going to let me politically move forward. You know, and I wasn't political at all. Anyway, bottom line is, I asked Norris, what can I do? He says, do what you're doing. He says, keep your head low, keep doing research, keep publishing. Because I was publishing at a, a frenetic rate. Keep publishing, keep teaching, and don't worry about it. He says, just keep doing the good work. He says, they're not going to, you know, they're not going to be able to stop you. Especially if you keep doing what you're doing. And he says, you know what, this will blow over. And Michael invites you back a year or two later, which is exactly what happened. And I became a fixture at his course. I, in fact, when, when it came to creating the uh, International Pediatric Orthopedic Think Tank, uh, you know, Mike, I don't think ever liked POSNA. He really liked the study group. And he hardly would attend POSNA. And so he, he wanted something more similar to the study group. So he had this idea, and he would bounce his ideas off of me. Like, who the hell am I? Even though I'm not coming to his course, he'd, he'd call me up all the time. He said, Drog, I want to know what you think about, you know, and he'd, he'd run. The, and, and he had this idea for this elite group of pediatric orthopedists. They had to be over age 40. They had to uh, be accomplished. They had to be invited. And the whole course was going to be case presentations. More, it was like the format of the study group. And five-minute presentation and 15-minute discussion. And that's what the iPod meeting is. And this was, I think, 1995. And he says, I want you to organize the whole thing. So he would, get, he would get me to organize things in the background and then wouldn't tell anybody my role. So, I mean, I think hardly anybody knows that I actually organized the original meeting in Chicago. And, and what, the format, and then he wanted to create these bylaws. And I said, Miran, I'm not 40 yet. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but you were the young guy doing all the work, right? right? And it was, yeah. it was 95, and I my birth date is 
56, so 96, I would have been 40. And he says, yeah, but I, I had just become full professor at University of Maryland, the youngest full professor at 39. And he says, Dror, by the time we get this organized, you'll be 40. <laughs> <laughs> so nobody's going to check your credentials in the first year. And, you know, so I, I was the only young guy. Now there's a bunch of young guys invited to this organization. And I'm one of the old farts now. I mean, that's the irony. But, you know, back then, I think the next youngest person was 15 years older than me and, and up. So, you know, I'm very indebted to him and, but meanwhile, you know, back at back at the ranch, you know, I was because I we talked about I was getting these patients from all over. It's getting amazing pathology. There was no one else. Everyone else was amputating limbs, right? And nobody was doing, you know, big deformities, and especially congenitals. And I was getting more and more congenitals coming my way. And honestly, I didn't know a lot about them. I uh, made a lot of mistakes in the early days. But I, you know, in the beginning, it was very Illusorovian type of approach. And mm -hmm. then I realized it wasn't working for the joints. You know, you had to, we had to do something better for the joints. So I remember I was tackling the knee joint and what we would now refer to as the super knee procedure I came up with it in 1994 with these extra articular ligament reconstructions. I'm indebted to Dave McIntosh, who was my mentor, and I kind of modified some of his techniques. And, you know, I was traveling a lot, so I, I got to learn from <clears throat> all kinds of people, you know. So I brought in parts of the Langenschgold procedure for dislocation of the patella, and I brought in part of the Gramont procedure who was a French guy that I'd met. Um, and I kind of melded all of these and then created a, an additional type of extra articular ligament reconstruction, the reverse of the Macintosh going medial instead of lateral. And all this came together in 1994. And I did the first one of these. Now, I, I, don't, I don't think I recognized the significance of it at the time. It wasn't until, again, later that you realize, wow, I just this was actually a very sick, I remember the date in retrospect, but not at the time. And then two years later, um, I came up with the solution to solve the, the deformity of fibular hemimelia, the, which we refer to as the super ankle procedure. It's yeah. not one procedure. It's actually, you know, there, again, my classification wasn't codified yet. It is now, it's published, but it was for, I was seeing so many that I could now categorize them into, this one has malorientation of the ankle joint, and this one has subtalar coalition malunion, and this one has a combination of both of those. And in this one, the subtalar coalition malunion is in valgus, and in that one, the subtalar coalition malunion is actually in varus, Okay. People are doing Ponsetti for, for club foot because they, a fibular hemilia looks in varus. Well, there's right. no subtalar joint. What are you doing? Okay. Yeah. And I recognized this really early on. And I so I created a bunch of these modifications to the super ankle. But the first one 
again in retrospect occurred in 96. And then the Supra procedure took till 97. Okay, the very first one. And, and believe me, these have all evolved. These were very primitive versions of these techniques. You know, I try and teach young people the anatomy of an idea. You know, doesn't you don't wake up one day and come up with a procedure like the super ape, which is, has about 50 different steps, and you figure out all 50 steps day one. It doesn't happen that way. You may figure out, you know, part of that. And then you do it, and you realize it's inadequate in this area or that area. For example, um, the original super hip recognized that there was an abduction contracture. So to treat the contracture, you have to lengthen the iliotibial band, but you also have to lengthen the abductor somehow. So I was doing a distal lengthening. Not the slide. The slide, right. And it was based on the yeah. Harding technique, which I'd learned in Toronto except instead of doing one third, I took the entire tendon and with the tendon of the quads and allowed it to slide. The problem is I changed the muscle tendon length ratio and it worked intraoperatively, but all these kids, as they got heavier and taller, developed a Trendelenburg gait. Okay. And Mm -hmm. it took me a while I didn't figure, you know, nothing spoils good results like good follow-up, right? Yeah. And, you know, so I invented this in 97, but the kids weren't heavy enough. This were two-year-old kids. They weren't heavy enough till 10 years later to overwhelm the strength of the abductors. And I started seeing this over and over and over. So in 2008, I think, you know, which is, you know, 11 years later, I did my first, what I call the abductor muscle slide, where I slid it from the proximal end, keeping the muscle tendon length ratio the same and, and recognizing this was a unique muscle who had a growth plate. The muscle has a growth plate. How many muscles have a growth plate, right? It's one of the few muscles that's attached to the apophysis and therefore it has a growth plate at its upper end. So you can take off the bone there, shorten the bone, and reattach the apophysis. Not only that, but the apophysis will then grow and retension the muscle. Yeah. But that didn't happen in the first super hip. Okay? Even though we were doing a degosteotomy and we were splitting the apophysis, it didn't happen. Because I hadn't thought of it. Okay? Yeah. Hadn't thought of the importance of it. So a lot of these things evolved. You know, today, sure, and I've published it, that the super hip is a, you know, very well codified procedure, very well worked out. There's really, I never say never, but there, there's, it, it's, it's a, as good a technique as it needs to be. Will there be some minor tweaks and maybe someone else will come up with them? Sure. But it is there, but it wasn't there in, two th- in uh, 1997. It wasn't there in 2005. It just got there in the last 10 years. So these things, and why, so you might ask, why have I been able to do that? I've been very lucky. These are rare diseases. 
I see rare diseases in large numbers. That's all you see. Right. So when you see 200 CFDs a year, okay, and you do 30 to 40 super hips a year, you're going to get better at it. Yeah. And you're going to recognize some of the problems. And, you know, I've been subject of a lot of criticism that I don't publish enough. I publish an average of 10 to 12 new articles a year. But I can't publish enough on, you know, this year alone, it's May. I have nine peer review articles either published or out there and three or four book chapters. Okay, that's more than most people. That's, that's a big, big year already. It is. And yet, if you look at a particular subject, I haven't published enough. And it's, it's absolutely true. I have a very busy clinical practice. And so it's hard to keep up with, you know, this. But it's been a tremendous evolution. So I've had the privilege, and I truly consider it a privilege, of getting to solve amazing puzzles and problems. You know, and not just, you know, a lot of people solve problems in one area. I've gotten to solve problems in a lot of areas because this limb reconstruction stuff, with the exception of spine, I have touched just about every area in lower and upper limb surgery, you know. And, um, you know, I do a lot of, most people don't know this, I do a ton of congenital hand surgery. You know, I, I, I just came back, we have a center in Poland. Uh, we'll talk about the Paley Institute. I know you wanted to talk about that, but we have a Paley European Institute. I did not know that. And so we have a center in Poland. And for reasons I don't fully understand, I think it's just because there's not very much congenital hand surgery in Poland. I see a tremendous amount of congenital deficiencies of the hand. A lot of them have gone to Germany for surgery. And, you know, it's one of the areas that I've done a lot of, especially radio club hand. And we've developed, I developed a procedure called ulnarization. Uh, mm-hmm. In fact, we just sent out a new paper on the third generation of this procedure. Again, better. The first generation was born 99. Okay. The newer generation solves a lot of the problems in the first generation. The second generation and first generation were both published. The third generation is going to come out now. And it has some elements that are more similar to centralization, but are still ulnarization and has one of the advantages that it doesn't kill the epiphysis. So no growth arrests. It doesn't, it has almost a 0% recurrence rate. It has good mobility. Those are three areas which centralization doesn't do well in. But this new Mm -hmm. one is a little more centralized than the older one. So it, it may actually be the one that gets everyone's attention because it's more appealing. Um, anyway, the point is, you know, I, one of my visits to Poland, I did 11 ulnarizations in one week. Wow. This, you know, all these kids have no thumbs. A lot of them don't. Um, so what happens is if I do 11 ulnarizations in one visit, I do 11 policy. You did policizations. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, That's an annuity right there. Right. So last, wow. You know, yeah. I was there last week and, and I did six policizations, three of which had been to Hamburg 
had failed policizations because their digital arteries split too distally. No one wanted to take the risk. We succeeded. We got them split. No finger died. You know, so I've, I've done a lot in that area. No one even knows I do that stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, but it, it, for me, it's been an amazing ride. I mean, because it's been so interesting. I've gotten to, I, I think, you know, some people are better at doing one thing over and over and over again. I probably would have been terminally bored. Um, and for me, it's the opposite. I really, I'm a dinosaur that way probably, but I love doing, you know, a hundred different operations. Last bastion of general surgery, right? That's what we do. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, it's incredible in the morning to do a policization and then to follow that with, um, you know, a big hip surgery, do a surgical dislocation of the hip and do a femoral head reduction osteotomy. You know, so yeah, it is. Um, I really do enjoy that. Um, I, I need to let you ask some questions. <laughs> yeah, no, no, this is great. I love it. But so I, I wanted to. But I'm going to jump to innovation. I, I do want to hear. I have some thoughts on uh, or some of your thoughts on the Paley Institute. But you know, the innovation process is so fascinating. And uh, as somebody in their 40s who's now 10 years into my practice, I realized at the beginning. I didn't want to mess anything up, right? Like it had to be sort of textbook. Um, and I've learned through the years, I mean, it's just going to happen because you're not, every outcome is not going to be great. You're going to learn as you go that uh, a lot of families with more challenging congenital complex conditions are very tolerant of sort of the learning curve of medicine that their kid is, is part of. Right. And so I'm curious, uh, as you went through how the complications, which I know we all have, sort of affected that curve and that innovative process? Because the, the story that I'm hearing is very much that you're learning and you're adapting and you're changing and you're modifying everything as you go. But I'm assuming that most of that was done either because you didn't like an x-ray because, you know, a kid didn't do as well as you wanted to or an adult didn't do as well as you want to, or you just felt like you left something on the table. And I'm curious how that process has worked for you over time. Sure. Well, let's say a good example is the super it procedure. Um, you know, I started that you, you had all these hips that looked like a coxavera. We now understand that they're actually not coxavera. They're very complicated three-dimensional deformity. But so little was ossified that what was ossified looked like it was a very severe coxavera. And, you know, I, I've always had an interest in hip surgery and I've always understood, you know, I'd, I, I'd read especially Bombelli's work and other people's work. So I really was facile with hip osteotomies. And... So the problem was I knew that when you, so I kept doing these hip osteotomies. And by the way, in the beginning, I figured out ways to use the external fixator to do that. I thought, here's a great minimally invasive way. And I could put this on, do a hip a proximal femoral osteotomy at the upper end and a distal femoral osteotomy for lengthening. And I would do an acute correction. And then I'd get 100% recurrence of the proximal femoral deformity, 100%. And I, it was bothering me. I mean, you know, I got the length. I didn't cause any harm. These kids had that deformity to begin with, but I wasn't making any progress on improving their hip deformity. 
So I came to the conclusion this closed technique is not the answer. I, the other part of it was I felt I'm missing something. I, I'm not understanding the pathoanatomy. So I've always gone back to pathoanatomy. And this was before we were doing MRIs on kids. Listen, if we could have figured out the nowadays, it would have been way easier. But in the 90s, honestly, you know, I don't know if you find this incredulous, but we didn't, you never did an MRI at that age. And we just didn't do a lot of MRIs on kids. You got to understand, the MRI only came out, I think, in the mid 80s or something. Yeah. Yeah. And it took a while for it to percolate and, you know, it was used for brain, for spine, for abdomen, and, and a lot more for adults than in kids. And then, so in the mid nineties, we were not putting a child to sleep to have an MRI. Very rarely. You have to have a really good reason. So I was figuring these things out based on x-rays and based on the literature. All my classifications, they actually turned out to be correct. But they, were, but they weren't based on, wow. No. That, you know, everyone probably thinks, I saw MRIs and figured it out. No, they were based on that. And sometimes I'd open these things and I'd look at it and say, oh, that's what it is. You know? And so, yeah, these things happened because I had a lot of them. And I didn't cause any harm to these patients. But I, like I said, I, some of them I didn't make better. But the patients had tremendous confidence in me. And I was moving the bar forward. They got lengthened. They got, I always made sure their joints didn't dislocate. I've been doing pelvic osteotomies before limb lengthening for a long, long time. You know, I actually published on that, you know, a while ago. Mm -hmm. So I was always doing that. And then it hit me. The problem wasn't the bone. The problem was the invisible part. It wasn't even going to show up on an MRI, by the way, that we had an abduction contracture, that your trochanter is so far posterior and so far close to the pelvis that the abductors never grew away. The piriformis tendon running from the sacrum to the tip of the greater troch never grew. So the whole thing was tethered in external rotation. The, the, the psoas contracture kept the upper femur in flexion, so it could never extend. And when it was in flexion, it looks like varus. Okay. Right. It wasn't really a real varus. And, and it, it um, took me a long time to figure it out. Um, and it took me even longer to be able to explain it to other people. I began to understand it, but I realized that until the day that you can explain it to someone else. And the real epiphany came when I started to writing, write a book on this. And this book is still unfinished, but I had to explain this to the artist and I had a really good idea of how it looked. And I used to get very frustrated with her. She couldn't understand what I was explaining. And of course, you know, it's, it's easy to get angry at someone else for your own failings at being able to explain it well. And, you know, I remember later apologizing to her. I said, I'm frustrated by my failure to communicate. And then I figured out how to explain it. And actually working with the artist was one of the best thing ever happened. In fact, as soon as we get off this call, I, every Sunday I meet with her and we work more on some of these things, this compilation that will eventually show up in a book. But 
it, it helped me to explain this pathoanatomy. So this thing evolved over time. It, again, and what I, but what I realized, the epiphany moment in 1997, it actually occurred a year or two before, I just didn't have the guts to do it, was I understood that the primary problem was the flexion contracture, the abduction contracture, and the external rotation contracture. And that if you undid those, then the bony part, you could correct it. You could even correct the 90-degree deformity. And what came shortly after that, which is actually one of the most important discoveries that I've done. I did this discovery years ago, but I didn't codify it and explain it, is the role of shortening. That in, that uh, you, Look, you guys do this in the spine. Took you, yeah, yeah. took you years to realize that. That if you do vertebrectomies and this and that, you can do an off, you can do a huge acute corrections, right? Yep. Same thing in the limbs. When you have a 90 degree deformity, people got too hung up on preserving length, but the length's not there to begin with. You have to accept that the length is from the center of the femoral head to the, to the knee. The fact that the femur first goes up and then goes down, forget it. it that length's lost, lost. Yep. It's gone. Don't get too caught up with it. So you can keep the distance between the hip and the knee the same and chop out the extra bone. And that was the key. And I figured all that out in 97. I figured, and it came together, and the first correction happened. And then I kept getting better and better. But then the more subtle things like the muscle strength took 11 more years, okay? And, and, and so on. So innovation... Innovation's not a one-step method. Um, and innovation, you have to have a very... The other thing that's really critical, your brain has to be well-rested. Innovation occurs best, you know, when you're not thinking about anything. As, like, for example, the multiplier method. You know, still one of the things I'm most proud of. I thought of that at 32,000 feet sitting in economy class flying over to Northern Ireland, okay, in, I think, like, 1998. And I was just sitting there. My mind was blank and wandering, and I guess I was daydreaming and thinking about, and I said, well, I wonder what happens if you divide the length at maturity by the length at any age. And... I didn't have the numbers in front of me, but I knew a few of the numbers and I did them and they calculated to the same number. So I literally landed and I called uh, Neil Bave, who was our physical therapist, but he worked a lot doing research with me. And I said, Anil, um, first of all, I woke him up because I was so excited, the time difference. I said, Neil, don't worry about the loss of sleep. This is going to be worth it. I said, I need you. I, he says, yeah, yes, I know it's Saturday. But I need you to immediately pull the Anderson and Green chart and do the following calculation and fax it. There was no email. Fax it to me, okay? Fax me the results. And I, I think it was like four in the morning. And poor Anil. So he, 
he did all this. I'd like, I had to change planes in Manchester to get to Northern Ireland, to Belfast. And by the time I landed, and I gave him my host in Belfast, by the time I landed, I had, you know, this coming out of the fax machine. And I couldn't believe it. Every single division was almost the same number. And the multiplier method was born. It was born because I was at 32,000 feet, hypoxic, with nothing to do in economy class, sitting in a middle seat, crammed there, could not sleep, you know, and, and you know, and, and my mind just daydreamed. That's how innovation occurs. If people really think innovation, you sit down and you know, I'm going to think of an idea today. You're absolutely wrong. And not everyone can innovate. It is... Some, it's, it's a skill. I can't, there are things I, I'm not good at, but other people are. I am good at this innovation stuff. It, it happens naturally to me. In my residency, it got me in trouble because I would think out loud. I remember in my residency telling one of my attendings, why don't we just inject bone marrow into non-unions. He reported me <laughs> for this crazy idea because he thought I was trying to tell him to do human experimentation. Okay. I then went to the lab and that study is published. It was one of the first studies on the use of bone marrow to treat bone defects in rabbits. And I, I, no, I wasn't suggesting to do it in a human subject, but I it was like talking out loud. I just can't help it. Yeah. And, and, you know, so some people have this and some people don't. And you have to use, you know, your God-given skills, whatever they are. And one of mine is this innovation. John Hertzenberg who was my dear friend and colleague till I left Baltimore after 22 years. I think we were partners for 19 of those years. I remember him saying to someone who said, you know, that partner of yours, Drawer, he paints outside the lines. And John said, no, he doesn't. He doesn't see the lines. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. It's, I thought about that and it was genius. It's true. Because a line means that there's a limit. A border. But more, yep. more often than not, that limit is artificial. I was taught all kinds of dogmatic things. You know, even to this day, it says you can't lengthen more than 10 or 15%. When you go and research that, you realize that it's nonsense. It, 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 it dates back to Kawamura and a bunch of other guys who created these rules. There's no basis for it. And in fact, the limit on lengthening is an amount and not a percent. I've proven that over and over. So you got to, what I do encourage other people, whether they're medical students, residents, fellows, or other attendings, is don't just accept dogma. Where did that dogma come from? 
I remember I didn't, I was wondering where did the proximal radius grows, contributes 20% of the growth of the whole radius. So I went and researched it, and it goes way, way back to the 1920s, single case report. And ever since that case report, that number has been reported. It turns out that number's true. <laughs> but but it was from a case report of the 20s, which I feel like is how orthopedics has been perpetuated over right. time. Right, but we talk about it as if it's dogma. It's based on yeah. one anecdotal case, and they got lucky. Yeah. It is actually true. So we need to challenge dogma. You know, and what I, I hope people won't take, I hope people take what I teach as a step forward, but not as the last step. And I challenge everyone to do better. I challenge, every, you know, I've pushed, look, I, this field's changed. Where we were with congenital femoral deficiency, fibular hemilia, tibial hemilia, radial club hand, congenital serothrosis of the tibia, where we were when I came into this profession and where we are now is a light year away. We've made huge strides. Yeah. And I'm very proud of that. And, you know, I do understand that a prophet is never appreciated in their time. I'm good with that. I have no ego issues. Um, people can continue to, to criticize me, to question me. No problem. I have no doubt that they will probably appreciate me more once I've retired, you know, than currently. Because I have, I've pissed a lot of people off. I've challenged everything that everybody has said. But not to be an asshole. I've challenged it because there are real good reasons to ask questions. And I, I'm sure it, people get annoyed, another Paley classification, another this. I'm sorry, what would you, you want me to name the Paley one, two, three, how about just one, two, three, four? I don't really care. It, I, none of my classifications, for example, were named in order to see my name in lights. It is the standard within orthopedics that we name classifications by the author. Okay. I don't care whether they bear my name or not, but that is the, you know, I'm just playing by the rules. I'm, I'm sorry if I've developed a whole bunch of classifications, but they were necessary because, you know, the Jones classification didn't predict prognosis or guide treatment. And, there are so many unclassifiable cases with the Jones tibial hemorrhage. The, yeah. the, um, you know, the various CFD classifications were designed at a time when we amputated anything more severe than a small hypoplastic femur. Okay. The fibular hemimelia classifications, similarly. I mean, talking about the amount of missing fibula, which has no bearing whatsoever on prognosis, on can we talk about the foot deformity, which is way more important? And then talking yeah. about number of rays, which also has no relationship to function. I mean, I can show you a video of one of my patients who has one toe, one toe. And he is one of the fastest kids on all his teams. And by the way, he has three toes on his other foot. Okay. Wow. Yeah, and he's yeah. really fast. And he's really got amazing function. So if you... You know, so let's talk about things that guide treatment. Let's talk about things that, that you know, that, that are related to prognosis. 
So, I mean, these were the, the impetus to develop a lot of these things. So I want to, because uh, I want to um, make sure we get to your institute, which is another thing that bears your name. Um, but, and, and I, I talked to you about this uh, sort of on the lead-in, but, you know, for the guests that I've had on, your institute is pretty unique because pretty much everybody who I've had on has been at a major, you know, hospital-based academic center. And I've always wondered, uh, you know, I, I, my, I have uh, a couple of partners here in Atlanta who do a fair amount of limb deformity and uh, Jill Flanagan, who you probably know, sure. has taught at the course a fair amount. And it seems like that was sort of a mecca for a while. I mean, you guys had a pretty good thing going and, and I it was enjoying hearing the story of you building that. I'm curious what the impetus was to come down to Florida. Was it to create something that was standalone that you had complete control over? Was it was there a need that you saw that wasn't being filled working through sort of a larger academic setting? I'm just sort of curious as to the process that allowed you to develop what you guys have now. And then I'd love to hear about how you've grown it because a couple of my good friends, John Ashgar and Harry Shuffleberger are, are your partners now uh, in the spine world. And I think that's spectacular too. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it is, you know, it, by the way, today, so I guess it's the 30th of May. So yesterday, was my 12-year anniversary for moving down here and opening the center. And the, um, the mayor of the county, it, it's actually had such a, we'll talk about it, such a huge economic impact on Palm Beach County. The mayor of the county, to honor us, actually named May 29th as Drawer Paley Day for Palm Beach County. Wow. <laughs> That's a pretty good game. One of the things I'm most proud of is I have my own yeah. day. <laughs> it's pretty funny. But, um, yeah, I've been down here 12 years. It's really incredible. Um, I came here as a solo practitioner. We are 13 surgeons now. Um, we are, by September, we should be 14. Um, the model here is very different. The Medical Tourism Center it is a um, it is a private practice, but we are employed by uh, Tenet, which is you know a large hospital corporation. Uh, but the the practice is set up as a uh, as a private practice eat what you kill model. Um, it has a lot of positives, and I'll talk about them in a minute. But you have to go back. So I started like all these other guys that you interviewed. I was a look. I left Toronto. I couldn't get a job at Sick Kids Hospital because in the Canadian system they have a certain number of jobs, and I only wanted to work there and nowhere else. And at the time, I wanted a job. They were full. Little did I know that they were about to implode and everybody was about to leave, and a whole bunch of jobs. And in fact, when I was still on staff there, and I had just received my labor certification, and two months later, I was going to get my green card. John Wedge offered me a job to stay, which was very tempting. But I told you, one of my things is, if I make a commitment, I will not go back on it. And I, University of Maryland had recruited me and had sponsored my green card, and I decided to go ahead and that I'd come back to Toronto if this wasn't going to work out. Um, so I moved there, as I mentioned, and was there for 14 years. I 
you know, I played the whole academic game. And, uh, but even within that, I grew, I grew our group. And I, I remember, you know, I came on, this is, this is for the young guys. I hope they hear this part. My starting salary was $74,000 a year. Okay, these guys are getting like four, $500,000 starting salary. This isn't that long ago. I mean, it, you know, this is not 1920. This was 1987. It was $74,000. If you work out, if you, it still doesn't follow the math, you know, for what the dollar right. was. It's still pretty low. Yeah. And I generated, I generated between then and July 1st, I still remember, I generated $750,000. Okay. And so 10 times that. And I asked for a raise based on that. Could I get a hundred thousand dollars? <laughs> and, you know, and they actually gave me one fifteen. you know, I, for a university guy, I moved up quickly and I ended up getting relatively well compensated for that day and age. Um, my highest salary after 14 years on staff, okay, is still lower than a starting salary for a post-fellowship guy. And I had three fellowships, okay? And, you know, I was never motivated by money. It was, I called it the corruption of medicine. I was never corrupted by it. I didn't care the pair source, the pair mix, or this and that. Now, it so turned out because I had a really great paramix and patients coming from everywhere and a lot of them uninsured because they're coming from Europe, South America, Australia, everywhere. Um, they were paying cash for their treatment. I didn't get $1 of that. didn't even have a bonus structure back then. I mean, in retrospect, it was legalized theft, you know. But I worked for the university and I did not leave because of what they were paying. We did get recruited and, um, you know, and I did look at a bunch of chairman jobs. I was offered my first chairman job in 1996, okay, um, age of 40. Uh, it was offered my, wow. my first chairman job. I became full professor at age 39, you know, and um, it, you know, it, it uh, but it wasn't about money. It was about, I loved the work I did, you know, it was, such an exciting time and it was you know it's still such an exciting time i mean you know it's it's hard to be in a field where it's exciting for 30 plus years but really this is uh you know this has been incredible um but i we got recruited because uh sinai hospital came to us and made us an offer we couldn't refuse they built us our own hospital they built us a building called the rubin institute of advanced orthopedics. And it was just John Hertzenberg, myself, and I recruited Michael Mond from Hopkins. And it was the three of us. And we brought on, uh, I think, one of our fellows, which was Janet Conway. And uh, so it was the four of us, actually. Um, we used to have Kevin Tetsworth, but he moved to Australia. So Janet came in to replace Kevin. And we grew that thing. We became the busiest orthopedic group in the state. Uh, made U.S. News and World Report and all that other stuff. 
And um, <clears throat> it was really an amazing place. I mean, it got paid better than a University of Maryland, but not that much better. And um, But it was really an amazing place. And I ran a $2 million budget. I had, was in charge of it. And I had 200 employees. I was in, you know, it was a very big job. Um, and, you know, it seemed like our administration had great vision. But I started butting heads with them and had, you know, when they started to say, what, how much bigger do you need to grow this? I knew it was over. And um, you know what? Divorce, empty nester. It was the right timing. I always loved Florida. I actually looked in Florida several times. I always wanted to live down here. And so I decided, you know, I've got a practice will follow me to the moon. And it doesn't matter where I set up, they will follow me. And so why don't I choose a place I want to live rather than be a slave to being in a big medical city like Baltimore, you know, like Boston, like Cleveland, like New York, you know, L.A., on and on and on. And um, it's a long story, but I ended up in West Palm Beach, okay? And this is a little heaven on earth. I don't know if you've ever been down here. Oh, yeah. I live on the water. I was in a lacrosse tournament not long down there. It's amazing. It's amazing. And, uh, you know, it's it's a beautiful place to live. Um, and, um, you know, it, it just, it was all, uh, let me tell you, it was like serendipity, one thing after another. I found this place serendipitously. I met my soulmate, my second wife here, Jennifer, serendipitously. And it just, somebody wanted me to move down here. And you know what? All my patients, let's say 90% of them moved. But 10% of them stayed in Maryland. And the 10% was replaced by a huge volume from this large state called Florida. And yeah. the entire South. And so... My practice doubled in size by the move. And I, you know, was a single practitioner. So I started bringing on, you know, one partner at a time. Um, I, like I said, I initially brought on partners in my field. But then I realized that I built this infrastructure. Oh, by the way, you know, Sinai Hospital, I was a hospital employee. So I went from... University employee, hospital employee, and now I kind of moved to a private practice, but an employed private practice by a big healthcare corporation, a for-profit group. And only after a year or two here did I finally understand something. And this is a message for all of you academicians. I was institutionalized. You're all institutionalized. It's not meant to be an insult. I'm a diehard academic. I still do tons of research. But a lot of, I, I think it's improved. A lot of academic institutions now are, are paying, you know, market rates. A lot of them are paying fair market value. But still, most places, for example, don't allow you to buy into a surgery center. And in private practice, you can. Why shouldn't academic guys be able to buy it into a surgery center, for example. Um, most places don't allow you to profit from your ancillaries. 
because the university wants those ancillaries or the hospital wants those ancillaries. So what I've realized over time, and it, it's been a learning process, is that we all sign away our lives in what I call legalized theft. And for whatever reason, our insecurities or whatever, you know, it's just, you know, it's easy. We're academically committed. We're, we're not corrupted by medicine and so on. You know, we're not mercenary. We end up accepting what I think are really bad business arrangements. And while it was okay for me to do that, coming out and earn 74000 and bring in 750000 and not even think about it, you know what? I'm a little bit older, and I understand it better. Look, I came from Canada, and that influenced how I looked at things for a long time. I don't look at things that way anymore. I really think that it needs to be a fair arrangement. And, and I think, you know, these days, if we want to keep people in academic medicine, we should allow them to be entrepreneurial. We should allow them to buy into, you know, ambulatory surgery centers. We should allow them to own their own ancillaries and to profit from them. Yeah, the dean doesn't need to get as much money because that's we are subsidizing all kinds of departments. We're giving money to the dean. I'm sure I'm going to piss lots more people off today, but I'm, I'm totally okay with that. You know, we need to, I, I think that, look, I'm, I'm a diehard academic, but academia is at great risk if it cannot compete with some of the systems in place in private practice. Private practice is, what I've learned, it's the gold standard. There's a lot of downsides to it, but it is the gold standard. Yes. I'm a full-fledged American now, okay? I still <laughs> believe in socialized healthcare, but I'm a full-fledged entrepreneurial American. And I really believe that that you know you can still be academic. Academia comes from within, not from without. You think because you go to a university, you're academic. There's so much deadwood in terms of academic deadwood in universities. Academia comes from within. Okay, if you enjoy publishing, enjoy doing research, absolutely you should do it. Okay, and it doesn't matter what kind of practice you're in. I'm not disincentivized. I do it because I love it. In fact, it's the opposite. I don't, right. I don't need, I don't, I no longer, I think I am a, actually I do have an academic appointment at FAU and at University of Vermont uh, and previously University of Toronto for a while. But I don't do it for that. I don't do it because I'm trying to climb the academic. Okay, I did that. You're right. I was assistant and then went associate and then went full professor. And, and at the time it was really important to me and I played the game. I've been head of, president of LLRS. I actually started the organization. Okay. I've been head of the ILLRS and all this ego game and all this stuff. Great. Wonderful. And that's really important to a lot of people. You know, at the end of the day, you're going to realize it's got to be more than just ego. But in retrospect, a lot of it was ego. And a lot of it is ego for a lot of people. 
But I really think that what we need to do is deinstitutionalize ourselves, choose the kind of practice we want, and practice whether it's within a university setting, within a hospital setting, within an employment model with a for-profit or not-for-profit group, or in pure private practice, and, and design your practice around that. That's my big belief. Now, that's what we built here. Now, we have a different model because it is a medical tourism model. I go after individuals whose patients will follow them. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, when I brought David Feldman here from New York, you know, David was uh, chief of pediatric orthopedics there. I mean, his practice followed him. Okay. Because David has an incredible reputation. It's all about reputation. And, you know, and to some extent, it's monetizing your reputation. You built this whole thing up. A lot of these academic guys have never monetized their reputation. Now, David's still publishing, still doing research, still looking yeah. after patients. He's a superb surgeon, superb teacher, still involved in all of that. And he actually has far less headaches, and he has an ownership in an ASC, and he gets ancillaries, and and you know, and and he's in a eat what you kill model, okay. Yep. And I brought um, look Tom Minus in the adult world. I mean, the number one cartilage repair guy, the guy who started it all, you know, with Peterson technique, cartilage repair, all of that. He left the Brigham Hospital. These guys are coming. These are heavy hitters. They're coming from big named institutions. He's here. These guys have ended up with a very pleasant, efficient practice setup where they have great infrastructure, great access to operating rooms, far fewer headaches, less committee work. And Tom runs prospective databases for all his patients. Okay. He has his own full-time research person. He's making multiples of what he made at the Brigham. So is David. Okay. And at NYU. I brought uh, Matt Dobbs down here, one of the more recent. Yep, recently. Okay. Matt was at Wash U. I mean, Matt is a Nicholas Andre Award winner. Uh, he's a um, uh, Kappa Kappa Delta, Delta Award winner. Yep. I mean, these are the Nobel Prizes of orthopedics. The guy has, you know, NIH grants, runs a genetics lab still. He's as academic as they come. He has patients coming to him from all over the world. Okay. And he's still as academic as he was before. He has a way better practice setup without getting into much details. He owns an NASC. He gets ancillaries. He earns a lot more money. He sees actually more patients than he did before, has more access to OR time. Okay. So, and, and I can keep going. This goes on yeah, yeah. and on. And these guys that we've got here, you know, Brad Lamb, who's a foot and ankle guy. Craig Robbins came from University of Mississippi. You know, he's a peds guy uh, and so on. And we've now begun bringing the younger generation. You know, Claire Shannon, who's a PD pod. And, you know, she's a superb surgeon. And, you know, she works closely with me. Aaron Huser, another one. He was at Gillette. Claire was at Johns Hopkins. You know, these. Yep. so we're, we're not just bringing the older guys. We're bringing these younger guys to eventually take over the practice of the older guys. So it's, there's a lot of succession planning built into it. It's very strategically built. And I can tell. You know, yeah. 
you you mentioned Harry Schuffelbarger. Look, Harry is Harry's the I guess I would call him now the grandfather of modern spinal instrumentation. Yep. I mean, I remember when Harry was introducing the Cottrell Dubassé in 85. Okay, that yep. was my vintage. I remember that. I used to send Harry cases, you know, from Baltimore to Miami. All right. I, we are honored. Harry's in his mid-70s. We're honored to have him here. I mean, it's really... Um, and And Harry... You need to ask him sometime what he thinks about his current practice situation compared to being at University of Miami for his entire career and, and how the difference in freedom he has here. John Ashgar, who's a superb guy, okay? Yep. And you know John. And, Real you know, awesome. again, I, I'm, I feel so honored, honored to be associated with all these guys. These are awesome, awesome guys. Every one of them is an academic orthopedic surgeon, by the way. Every one of them is innovating, teaching courses, writing book chapters, writing books, creating new devices, publishing peer-reviewed papers, and on and on and on. And, you know, it's a little bit, if you want to look at it, it's a little bit kind of like William Beaumont and Harry Herkowitz's group, where he created, and look where that's gotten you know, right, right. Jeff Fishkin runs that group. I mean, that, you know, Iris Saltz, I mean, great. They were a private practice group. They were one of the first to kind of, you know, break the mold. I mean, they now run a residency program, right? Yep. So we are a different model. And we're one, we're one of the first models where what I target is surgeons who are at the top of their game and who have huge reputations and who patients will follow. So like a Matt Dobbs, where patients, honestly, Matt's practice has grown, not gotten smaller. You know, he left, he left Wash U and being on the East Coast, it's actually improved. You know, it's easier to get here than to St. Louis. Yeah. And so he's, yeah. he's got huge following from all over the world and he hasn't missed a, a beat. Steve, Steve Quinnen, you know, well-known trauma guy, trauma reconstruction guy from University of Miami, you know, he's joined us, you know, and so each of these guys brings a very unique skill set. And I won't, so you know, so I haven't recruited local guys who happen to have big practices that might want to join us. It's not about the revenue of bringing in some big local, because I can tell you, we have a lot of people knocking at our door. I am, yeah. our model is specifically looking at doctors with high reputations, with referral bases where patients will follow the doctor. I know a lot of big institutions think they own the patients. Right. They do till the patient leaves and goes somewhere. Until, yeah, until they go elsewhere. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. And if they, the patients don't go somewhere else, they don't have such a big reputation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, listen, drawer. I, I, this has been so enjoyable, and you know, you're somebody who I've had the opportunity to listen to it uh, at IPOS, and uh, obviously, our worlds don't cross too much between spine and uh, limb lengthening and reconstruction. But this has been really enjoyable, and I'm glad we got a chance to do this. Mark. And I look forward. Uh, I know you're, you've been a regular at IPOS, and so I look forward to seeing you there again. And so, thank you. Yeah, no, I, I you know, IPOS. 
you know, we talked about the early days with the Pet Tangent course and then Chad Price's Nemours course and now IPOS. And I have to say, of all the courses that I attend and participate in, and I hope to participate for many years to come, it's actually been a real privilege to be part of that one. It is really yeah. uh, one of the best, if not the best, of all the courses that I do participate in. And, and you know, it's fun. I enjoy it. I, I, I'm sure one of these days they're going to retire me. But, uh, you know, hopefully I've got a few years left with that. Yeah, hopefully. Well, thank you so much. This has been a real joy. Thank you. Thank you.